With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. All right, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Y Whales community. Uh, Cliff Ertley here, uh, Y Whales advisor. And uh, with me, I have Mr. John Paller to talk about Opolis. Um, John, why don't you uh, just introduce yourself a little bit? And I think one one thing I'm always curious about is how the heck did you get into Web three? And uh, maybe tell us a little bit about the Buffercorn and and uh, you know side gig you have running you know maybe the largest Ethereum conference uh, in the world. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Cliff. I appreciate it. Um, so my name's John Baller. I'm the founder of Opolis and also the founder and steward of Eat Denver, which is as you mentioned the world's largest uh, Web three event. Uh, that happens annually in February, March in Denver, obviously by the name. Um, I got uh, I got into Web3 progressively, but early. So I was in a different startup in the uh, HR tech space back in 2013, 2014. And I was at a technology conference or an entrepreneur's conference in California. And I randomly met a guy by the name of Dima Buterin at that conference, um, fairly small, intimate affair. So he and I spent quite a bit of time together talking, you know, tech and entrepreneurship and family and all this stuff. And like, I didn't have any idea that he was the father of Vitalik Buterin at the time, but, um, we made fast friends and talked a little bit about Bitcoin, but just really kind of stayed in touch on social media. And then I started seeing of all the posts about Ethereum and I reached out and said, Hey, I'm, kind of curious about what this is and he sent me the white paper and some other stuff and kind of sat with me for a while and I didn't really do much about it but then I kept hearing more about like blockchain tech and all smart contracts and all of this and it started hitting the VC buzz lexicon and so I, I had some use case ideas that I reached out and said hey I, I got some use cases I'm interested in discussing with Vitalik would you introduce me and he said uh, well, I can I can introduce you, but I can't guarantee he'll even respond because you know he doesn't talk to me half the time. I'm like, okay, well, fine, that's okay, I don't care. Like, and within a half an hour, he responded, and we were like rapid fire responding to each other, and we spent a half half a day, an entire afternoon talking about these use cases that were terrible in hindsight, but he was very gracious about it, and it sort of it sort of recalibrated my direction on what I was thinking about and how I was thinking about Web3 tech. I was originally thinking about it like most technology, which is more of an efficiency capture. Like how do we create more efficiencies in our processes and how do we, in, in our communities and whatever. And what I realized was, well, blockchains are kind of slow, dumb, and expensive, but this is really about a social shift. So once I actually got that, it was like bells and whistles and lights going off because I was, since 2005, I've been on the track of attempting to democratize employment. So that's originally what attracted me to the talking points of Web3 and blockchains was this democratization, decentralization. But I didn't really understand like the constructs and the paradigm shift that it represented. I didn't have any clue about that much less how we were going to do this. So then as I was digging and digging and digging, I had that red pill moment. And it was just like, holy crap, like everything's going to totally change. So in 2016, I basically started the process of divesting myself of everything that I had built for almost, you know, pushing 20 years, 15, 16 years at the time. And I parlayed it in 2017 into what was the seedling opolis you know we didn't really know what our use case was going to be or how we were going to go about democratizing employment 
but we knew that we were going to do it. And um, we started about a year and a half, two year research project on, uh, you know, economic models and monetary policy, legal frameworks and like all this stuff to try to figure out how to, how to approach this HR tech sector, but from a web three standpoint. And then we landed on the idea. Originally we were thinking about like marketplaces and job boards and things like that and how people find work. But we realized that, um, the real magic happens at the protocol layer of employment, which is the legal relationship between yep. the employer and employee. So unless you, unless you fundamentally shift that, none of the other stuff is ever going to shift because the corporations will always control it. And their best interest from a game design standpoint are not to democratize employment and, you know, hand everybody the keys to their information and their data and their, you know, their time and their freedom. And, you know, the things that people want in the work world today are freedom and flexibility. Well, that's not necessarily in the best interest of the corporations, especially if the corporations are taking all the risk. Right. So you got some conflicts there that you've got to sort out. And so we, we started really honing in on that. So that's how I got into Web3. That's how Opolis was started. And it's, like I said, it's a progressive decentralization of John. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I love it. I mean, and I love, I love uh, kind of that red pill moment too. Um, your observation that really blockchain is just big, dumb, slow, expensive databases. It's like if, it's just tools. if people are trying to, you know, a, a lot of the use cases I see are just taking, you know, DBA work and putting on blockchain. I was like, that's inefficient. That's not what it was meant no, for. No, that's that's the the enterprise approach, right? So the enterprise right. approach to blockchains like Hyperledger and such was always really dumb once I got it. Yeah. Cause once I got it, I was like No, like no. That that why 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 are we why are we putting databases uh, on on multiple computers, multiple nodes, copying the same data everywhere? It's 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 really inefficient from like a data usage query standpoint. But the value comes in, as you mentioned, well, the and, democratization. Yeah, and if you talk about like federated collaboration, where. Uh, you know, you got a bunch of a bunch of corporations. You know, collaborating their their data. That still doesn't mean that the data should be owned by any of these corporate actors. Like, you know, it, it's a complete miss, in my opinion, on and, and frankly, a bastardization of what blockchains are intended to do, which is really uh, decentralize and disintermediate. Right. Right. And that's you know when I when I got I got in about ten years ago into into the Web three crypto world and really at the at that time the the only use case was you know digital payments and digital digital storage of uh, of wealth and yeah. it, it helped a lot of uh, developing and developed uh, nations uh, people to kind of escape despotic fiat currency regimes to escape uh, escape hyperinflation mm-hmm. things of that nature then you kind of have like the DeFi summer where we can start democratizing access to capital and banking mm-hmm. and financing tools. And then we have kind of the, the NFTization type, you know, the JPEG, but also like Creator digital economy, identity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that, and so it's really cool to see with Opolis and others, like being able to leverage this, uh, you know, just decentralization, democratization technology in other verticals that might be a little bit harder to tackle. Um, well, they're, they're, so me, they're harder to tackle, but you couldn't do it without the set of primitives that have been built, right? So the primitives had to get built, and they're still being built. I wouldn't say that we're done building primitives like DID is still a work in progress. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of protocols and people working on it, but, like, it's not there's not a, a standard, you know, like a gold standard that's been set yet. Um, so within... So within the gig work and independent contractor and uh, remote work type type economy, how did you guys decide on how to position Opolis? And maybe talk us through a couple of the, the business cases or ideas that you guys looked at that maybe didn't make as much sense and why you landed on uh, the model that you guys are on right now. Well, this, this is a, I mean, I could literally probably spend a half an hour on this question, but I'll, I'll sum it up for you. So, um, the big thing that 
is scary but core to any innovation that happens in HR tech around this is employer of record. Yeah. If if you're not taking responsibility or if you're not solving for employer of record in a more democratized way where you're really giving ownership of employer of record to the individual somehow and then while st- still not like uh, making it a disadvantage to be doing that to them, right? So you can't, from a trade-off standpoint, you can't say, oh, well, now you own your employment, but you get absolutely nothing in terms of fringe benefits or any of this other stuff. You got to do both, right? So it's the genius of the end, not the tyranny of the or, to quote Jim Collins. And so what we were saying is like, okay, so the trade-off right now is if I want to subjugate myself uh, to... Um, a corporation, I get in exchange for that a, cont- a steady paycheck, and I get um, proof of income. I get W two pay stubs. I get healthcare insurance, group healthcare. I get a bunch of cool stuff, but I don't get my freedom and flexibility. I get told right. what to do, where to do it from, and when it needs to get done, and who to work with, and all this other stuff. So, like, it's. Uh, it, it's it's very asymmetrical and it's it's a huge trade off right so just to own my time i got to give up everything else right and now yeah. i i would argue as an amateur social anthropologist that this is by design that the corporations and and the the big money interests that could effectuate some sort of change don't really want you to leave that corporate apparatus because they are arbitraging your time as a worker for profit and if all the workers left, then the way things are right now, they see it as a huge disadvantage to them. Now, with the advent of AI, they might start thinking differently. But you know, the way that it is right now, that's the way most people think. So we said, well, how do we give people the, the, the benefit of both worlds, the best of both, right? So give them their freedom and flexibility, but then replicate the feeling of employment so that they can work from where, with whom, and how much they choose without having to make these huge trade-off sacrifices. Right. I can have great health care at a reasonable cost. I can have um, my time and my freedom. I can get access to good uh, retirement plans. It's all portable to me. I control it. I'm not getting permission from somebody else. You know, As long as I check a couple of small boxes and pay my bill to my, you know, my community, I can do all of these things my way. Okay. I can, well, and, and having traveled the world myself, I mean, one of the most odd things about the U S is that we tie our health insurance and our retirement to our employers. Yeah. Um, versus yeah. like owning that as part of who we are and then taking it with us wherever yeah, we choose port- to having portability and in the, the, uh, the European union, the EU isn't, the only fundamental difference there is you're really just getting it funded more in the social aspect, like healthcare, for example, it's just unbundled, but it's government run. You know, there's a lot of arguments against that approach. Um, but what we're doing is something kind of in the middle. So what we're doing is saying, okay, with the tools and resources that are available, how do we architect a solution, a comprehensive solution that replicates almost I mean, down to the T, the experience, the the semi-weekly payroll, everything, to where it's more of a set-it-and-forget-it sport for the independent worker. But they're not compromising on the quality of these other things. And they have this shared services apparatus that they can resource anytime they want to help them answer questions or just navigate this world as a solopreneur. Because we have this for large corporations – you know, large corporations have huge shared services departments that do all of this stuff for people. So we're just saying, yep. well, why can't you just, you know, the, the independent worker community is intensely fragmented, tens of millions of people. Why can't we create a system that allows, uh, you know, people to, to have their cake and eat it too, right? So right. That's what we they did. Can, they can focus on their craft, and then you right. guys provide the shared Right, and, and that way they're not going, right. well, I don't know. What to, we have quarterly tax payments. What? 941 filing? What? Like a monthly or you know weekly tax payments as in for employees? What? Or paying. And then you, 
or paying super high fees can- with with like gusto or whatever like you know i'm paying four grand a year for this like well is that worth it nah nah i'm just gonna yolo and it's like yeah right. and it's probably you guys not can, the best you guys can leverage i'm oh, sorry go ahead it's probably not the best strategy to do that but yeah yes we can leverage the procurement power yep and economies of scale because a lot of this is repetitious for us. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of the same for everybody. And once you have the knowledge and the know-how and the expertise and you build the automations around this, you can plug in thousands of people and just run it through. And then everybody's kind of getting the best of everything. Yeah. So um, you guys had an example on your site of Jen getting a $72,000 paycheck mm-hmm. um, and how that would work. But, you know, walk me through if, if Cliff wanted to go sign up with Opolis um, as an independent contractor, own my own employment, um, and then go work for, you know, some XYZ company work as with. a freelancer. Work with. With. Yeah. Work with. Yeah. Right. Um, for, yeah. So I'm with. Good. <laughs> this is the old, this is working for, this yeah. is working with, right. Mutualistic I love it. type of relationships is another thing that pops out of this. So, Let's say I'm a independent software developer and I'm working um, on various projects in Web3. Um, I mean, I can even be a real estate agent. I could be a day trader. I could be a bunch of different things. It kind of doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many revenue streams you have or how many DAOs you contribute to or whatever it is that you're doing or how many homes you sell. But if you're independent, in other words, you're usually a 1099 employee for whoever you're working with. Um, the first thing that we're going to do is wrap you in an S corp. So this is, this starts with an LLC, typically Delaware or Wyoming, and, um, uh, depending on the flavor that you prefer. And, and then, uh, you elect S corp status at the federal level. Now this puts you into a different taxation type of category bracket. Okay. And you're treated differently from a taxation standpoint. And there's rules around that. I'm not going to get into it, but we help navigate all of that. And then let's say your your company is bringing in two, $200,000 equivalent um, in total receipts, like revenue, right? So your business, when your business transacts with another business, which is B2B, that's called revenue, not income. Right. It's not income yet. I mean, it, it's not net income to the business. It's not income to you individually because the business is earning revenue. Now, let's say out of that, I'm playing a little bit of tax games here for maximizing my payroll tax or, you know, optimizing my payroll tax liabilities, then I'm only going to pay myself $100,000 out of that 200K in terms of the salary. So every two weeks or twice a month in our case, it's the the first Friday and the third Friday of the month. um, I'm going to set up, I'm going to join Opolis. My S Corp is going to become the member. I'm the only employee of that entity. Because as an S-Corp, I can create a bona fide employment relationship with myself, essentially. Right. I can allocate $100,000 salary. The um, employer-paid taxes are coming from my entity in addition to whatever fringe benefits I elect. So healthcare, life insurance, 401k, whatever I'm doing. So then as I join Opolis, I have an option to choose all of those things. From There's four different health plans that are all PPOs. They're all very high quality. We've designed them ourselves. Um, I'm on the health plan myself, just for example, because I wouldn't ever put something into the market that I wouldn't be willing to use myself. Yep. And so we're very discerning. It's not just, we're not, we didn't make the health plans for profit actually. So there's no incentive for us. Uh, yeah, there's no, there's no Delta there, right? You guys, that's not how you're making your money. Yeah. Right. The, the, the only way that we make money is a 1% community sustainability fee on the total consumption for payroll and everything in the processing. But the healthcare plan yep. itself, the retirement, we're not taking VIGs on any of that stuff. So um, as I join, I go through an onboarding process where I elect all these various benefits or I decline them. It's completely optional. It can totally modular based on your particular personal situation. You're not forced into anything. And you go through and then it'll pop out a number at the end that you need to put a deposit down based on whatever you've elected. And, and then that's essentially, you know, when you do a, a rental contract for an apartment, it's like your last month's rent. It's kind yep. of the same thing with this. It's like your last month's health care. 
Yep. Because if you, if for whatever reason you didn't pay your bill, we would just draw on that and we would notify you, hey, you got to you got to re- renew this deposit account. If you don't, then we're going to terminate your your membership, and then we'll just see services. Your employment still stays intact with your entity, but we're just ceasing services as it relates to co-employment and the actual payroll processing and shared services access that you have. So um, it's very inexpensive as it relates to what's else out there in the market. B2B sometimes are charging up to 5%, 6% of total wow. payroll. Um, in a staffing situation from a markup standpoint, they could be charging 20 25%. Yeah. Um, so we, yeah. We, we've cut out all the intermediary costs and just you know, focus on scale. So our North Star metric is you know, creating more payroll volume, which is incentivizing referrals and bringing new people. But as you join, you also become a member owner. It's cooperative. So it's not like there's some third party benefiting from all this. You benefit from this success. So it creates a very symmetrical experience. So when people are talking about Opolis, like, oh my God, I'm saving $300 a month on my family's healthcare insurance. I got better 401k options. I've got proof of insurance now. I can rent that apartment in New York that I wanted to get. And um, my life is kind of normal now, but I've got my freedom intact. I didn't have to go back to the corporate mill to get my, to get my you know, uh, normalcy, right? I've now got my normalcy, but in my independent world that I've designed for myself. And we now how do you guys how do you guys handle just the multiple jurisdictions? And I see right now it's US based. You guys are expanding into well, parts of Canada. Canada yeah, we're already in Canada, yeah. Okay, nice. Um, but you know, so my, my actual business right now, we have a couple hundred employees and we have thirty five plus states mm-hmm. um, with employees and you know, numerous cities and counties within mm-hmm. that. Um, how do you deal with the payroll complexities of that type of exposure? You know, whether it's like sick time accruals or uh, city taxes or all that kind of software. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's some, some really brilliant softwares out there that we've either built or borrowed or we lease right from other places. And we've cobbled it together into a a system that basically we plug in numbers, plug in a jurisdiction zip code, and it pops out the tax liabilities. So like we know, I mean, we've been doing this a long time. So in a previous life, you know, part of the reason why I'm probably aptly qualified to do this is I built a big staffing company in Colorado here. And at one point we were W2ing, you know, over a thousand people per week. And, wow. you know, I uh, got, we, we were doing 43 states and, you know, we all over the place. You know, we had various Department of Labor audits and other stuff that teach you a lot about what you need to do. We never had any employee classification file flipped, meaning we never misclassified anybody as a 1099, but they should have been in W-2 because we were always doing things by the book. So we got really good at understanding kind of how this stuff works, both federally, state, and local jurisdictions. And we also got to know all the different softwares and things that you need to plug these things in to make them work right. So for us, it's kind of second nature. Now, the average entrepreneur or software developer doesn't know shit about shit. And right. even if you're a small business owner that's growing your small business, you don't know shit about shit, you know, and you're like, I don't know about any of this stuff. So you go, got to learn it. Now in the B2B world, you've got your Gustos and your JustWorks and your ADPs and paychecks and these yep. other traditional sort of B2B models, right? That's all fine and good. But what if I'm a solopreneur? Nobody yeah. wants to touch you. Okay. No, they won't touch you. So that's where we fit, right? There's 35, 40 million independent workers nationally, just nationally right now that need something similar to what's available to the B2B world, but nobody wants to provide it because it doesn't, you know, make enough money and the sales cycle is different. And like, you know, the economies of scale and the cost of acquisition are not good. And so we've just said, forget all that. And we've web three eyes it. And in terms of um, legal structure, ownership model, incentive, game design, tokenization, and product suite to make the whole thing work to where people are incentivized to build the community, not just us by our own work, but the entire community is like, well, we need more members. You know, and they go, well, I got a friend that's a real estate agent, or I got a friend who's an independent chiropractor, or a massage therapist or traveling nurse or an independent clergyman or whatever, Twitch streamers, YouTube influencers, and we got it all. 
we have it all. So yeah. it, it's um, it's a, so so I, I actually want to get to the tokenization in a second, the work token. Uh, but one one last question on like the vision of providing a shared service backend for the solopreneurs. Um, you know, do you guys have on a roadmap things like uh, you know business insurance, legal advice, bookkeeping, like some of the other back office functions that corporations yeah, provide? Yeah, everything. So for both the business of the individual and the individual themselves, our product roadmap includes the entire life cycle of everything that you might need to touch. So from billing and collections to accounting to the tax returns for your business, plus the payroll, the individual tax returns, uh, you know, accounting for your individual stuff, as well as other tangential tools that might be, you know, assisting in that. So, yeah, the, the, the idea is to create Opolis as not just a payroll and employment benefits platform, but the command center for your, for yeah. your, entire, your entire commercial experience. Right, so banking, loans, employment, job boards, groups, meetups, whatever it, it, you could plug into this experience and have all of your documentation, all of my forms, all my tax stuff, everything in one area. But the engine that makes it go, most of that other tangential stuff is all provided for free. It's like the, the loss yep. leader stuff. It's like. We can do all that stuff for free at scale because 1% on a million people prints cash. And we don't right. need to maximize profit per member. We're maximizing by getting – because the total addressable market's so big, if we go out and get a couple million members, it easily pays for all of itself. Yep. Let's talk the work token. Um, I saw you guys are on, on Polygon. You had about 315 uh, million Genesis tokens. Mm-hmm. It looks like about 2,000 uh, unique uh, wallet addresses now. But just talk to us about what that token is, uh, how it's distributed, You know, not privately sold uh, to investors. Like, what's the, what's the vision or tokenomics and purpose of the token? So the token is a coordination mechanism. So the great invention of Web3, in my opinion, is the community token. And the reason for that is because it allows a new paradigm of economic models and incentive structures to exist that doesn't exist today in the traditional model of corporates and corporations or even groups or even co-ops. Right. Um, good example is Uber drivers. It doesn't matter how many drive rides you do. There is no economic incentive aside from the compensation you earn for the ride itself. There's no upside and so if you look at Uber's P&L and what their largest expenditure is every year, it's driver acquisition. Why? Because they don't treat their drivers very well when it comes to the grand scheme of things. If I'm Andreessen Horowitz and I put $10 million into Uber's uh, – or they did Lyft actually. But if I put it into Lyft and, and I get you know $300 million or $1.3 billion out of the deal um, when they go public – how much does the average Uber driver get? Nothing. Okay. Yeah. So like, but who really built that? You know, the drivers, the drivers. built yeah. it. And yeah, yeah, I mean, you can't say that Uber didn't, wasn't smart and very clever on a bunch of different things that they did. And I'm not saying they didn't deserve upside in value, but it seems disproportionate. You know, if I put 10 million in and I get 1.3 billion, but the average driver gets zero and you didn't even like try to like, you know, hey, we're going to airdrop a bunch of money. You're going to have to claim it as a bonus or something, but like we're going to give the drivers a reward for this. No, never. Okay, they didn't do it. And this is this is the um, capitalism 1.0 rearing its ugly head, and why we have such complaints about the disparities that exist in the work the working class versus the investor class. It's obvious, and it, but it's not just obvious from a moral standpoint. It's obvious from an economics and sustainability standpoint. Like, do you really think that Uber's business model is sustainable if, if drivers are the key to this? Well, they know that it's not, which is why they're working on driverless cars, because otherwise they have no right. business model later down the road. So they're, they're banking everything on being able to replace humans with essentially their own version of AI and um, – Will they be successful? I don't know. Uh, it hasn't been going very well so far. You know, the driverless car stuff, it's not going very well. Yeah, so John, some, one thing I think about with the, um, 
the driverless cars is, you know, there's that, that quote that some things that we think will take years, take decades. And uh, some things we take, think take decades will take years. And I just think that's kind of that in that space. Um, but uh, going back to uh, Opolis and your guys's kind of go to market strategy, I think one thing I really respect about what you guys are doing is that you, you have this web three spirit, this democratization spirit, um, you know, being able to uh, allow folks to own their own employment. And we're leading with the solution to that problem, not leading with NFT this, token that, Web3 that, blockchain this. And I feel like some people are just kind of shilling uh, Web3, you know, maybe for press or media or something like that. But you guys are actually trying to solve a problem. Uh, talk to me about like the, the idea behind, even though you're one of the founders at ETH Denver, not leading with Web3, leading with Polygon, leading with blockchain, but leading with the solution. Yeah, so I've been critical of the space since I got in that it was like, look, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy and all this buzzword bingo that we play in Web3 is really confusing. You know, protocol speak, dork speak, you know, it's like the average person doesn't understand any of this stuff. Okay, so if we're talking, we need to get to a place of mass adoption. We can't be talking like this. Right. Okay. No one's ever going to get it. Can you imagine an early internet conference? Oh, TCP IP is going to be the future. Yeah. You know, no, no, it's HTTPS. Like, it, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. Excuse my French. Right. But like, nobody understands what an NFT is or like a DAO or those are the low hangers. Those are the easy ones. Right. Yep. And so, like, when we built Opolis, we realized that the total addressable market inside of crypto is pretty small, actually, when you talk about the the grand scheme of things. And we saw Opolis more as a a mass adoption tool. But if we're going to do that, it's not about educating people. I have a saying. You cannot educate your way to mass adoption. Right. you got to show people. Not educate them, not make them smarter so they'll choose it. But no, you got to make it cheaper, better, faster. Just like any other evolution, revolution in the past, when you talk about technology adoption, cheaper, better, faster. Okay, there's a reason why cars out, you know, beat the horse, and there's a reason why electricity beat the the kerosene. Yep. There's a reason why these things become what they become. Blu-rays didn't even stick around that long. Because streaming was already on its heels, right? Like, by the time Blu-rays came out, streaming was already being worked on, and everybody knew that streaming was going to be the thing instead of, you know, like, I was talking about, like, you know, what's up with this DVD collection stuff that people used to do? You know, like, big walls of DVDs. I'm going to go pick one out. It's like, wouldn't it be cool if there was just a computer server that you could log into that you had access to all these DVDs that you owned? And you just pay a monthly subscription to have access to this stuff. I was talking about that way before Netflix even became, like, or any of this stuff was doing, like, what they're doing. Yeah, I built a, uh, in, in college, I actually built a, a MythBuntu, MythTV, Ubuntu uh, media server that we right. deployed, deployed <laughs> videos across the entire campus. Um, so we had, like, an early, you know, peer-to-peer streaming service in college. And it was way yeah, better exactly. than renting so, a DVD. Yeah, so to answer your question more directly about the like why we chose to approach the product positioning the way that we did is because people don't care about that stuff. You know, what they care about is, Hey, can you save me some money and give me some better healthcare coverage? Yeah. Cause the problem they're discussing with their spouse is like, they went to the open exchange. He wants to leave his corporate job, but she's freaked out about not having good healthcare insurance, but they can't find anything that's adequate. And and she's saying there's no way you're leaving that job until you we find something that's suitable and 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 as a replacement. Yep. And and as a as a servant to his family, he's like, okay, I, I get it. I can't do that. So it's like he's sort of then pinned into this crappy situation when it, it just seems really unnecessary because he wants to be doing something else. He doesn't really have the choice. Right. To leave. So. Yeah, he has the choice to do whatever he wants, I suppose. But, like, functionally, it's sort of a pseudo-choice. Right. It's yeah. not really a choice. It, it, it's, uh, so, anyways, we positioned it this way because we're trying to talk to the problem that people actually have. 
A lot of people don't even know that we're, we were born in crypto. They don't know that. Which is great. Because and it's perfectly fine with me. Uh, you know, the term opolis isn't a crypto term. You know, it's not like, you know, protocols yeah. and all this kind of stuff. You know, this speak, this lingo that pops up. No. Yeah. You know, we don't do we don't do any of that stuff. Okay. We we are solving real problems for real people. We've disintermediated the corporate overlords that are, you know, typically making these decisions for their employees. Yeah. And instead, we're enabling and empowering the individual to take ownership of their own employment structure and have that fluidity to work from where, with whom, and how much they choose. Now, whatever they decide is up to them, but the game is set. The game design is such that they're now incentivized to do good work. They're incentivized to do to, to, to express more creatively and be more competitive because in order to survive in an entrepreneurship world, you've got to do those things. You can't just hide in the corporate machine. So the, the, the game design is very nicely uh, positioned the way that we've built it. And, you know, the people that are ready or have already taken the leap to solopreneurship that need these support services this is an obvious thing for them. There's right. not a lot of selling that goes on with this. I mean, there's like, oh, wait, you can save me money and give me better health care. And the cost that I would pay gets covered by that savings. Plus, I get a pocket some money. Plus, I don't have to worry about any of this other crap. And I get a W-2. I get regular pay stubs. I look like a normal person. Right. Cool. I'm in. Yeah. What's the catch? And it's like, well, there is no catch because the catch is usually hidden in, well, how are you making all your money? How are you exploiting us, right? But because we're community-owned, because we're individual-owned, because we're member-owned, there's no BS because we only exist to serve the best interests of our membership. It's not different than like – we're like REI for employment. Right. When you go buy skis and, and stuff, well, they're trying to negotiate the best price possible because at the end of the year, any profits – gets distributed are going to come back to you anyways right so like what do you care if you're paying a little bit more because you're just going to get it back later yep well awesome so uh if i wanted to get started with opolis um as either an employee member or coalition member um what was my next step that i would take um and maybe just describe the difference of the different types of uh ways i I can engage with opolis and support the community yeah so this is an important distinction here and i'll explain kind of the difference between the two membership classes so um, in a cooperative, we call ourselves a digital employment cooperative in kind of normie land speak. It sort of signifies that we're like this next generation cooperative. So as I mentioned, the, the work rewards or the token rewards are only available to those who are members. So you have to be either a coalition member or an employee member. And it's done based on your contribution or what we call in the co-op world patronage to the, co- to the community. So as a coalition member, you're not an active sort of employee consuming payroll, insurance, et cetera, et cetera. But you're like an ally, call it. You could be a trade association as a group. You could be an individual who just really champions the idea of people being independently working. But you're, not, for, whatever not, for whatever reason, not equipped yourself to be a member. But I can refer people. I can earn rewards by their consumption, right? So I get credit. Let's say I referred you as a coalition member. I'm going to get credit for whatever you consume. And then if you, if I refer a bunch of other people, I could be getting credit for 10 or 20 or 50 people. And I'm earning equity essentially through these tokenized rewards for doing that. Now it's patronage, so it's not technically equity. But because I'm entitled to profits based on my ownership, of these tokens in the co-op based on my patronage contribution of referrals, it acts like that because right. on a pro rata basis, when the time comes based on my percentage ownership of tokens of the total supply in circulation, I will get my pro rata distribution of uh, patronage profits when it mm-hmm. comes time, like, like the REI example. Yeah. So the other side of this is um, an employee member. So an employee member is somebody who's actively consuming payroll, healthcare, whatever services. This person's getting a paycheck from the employment commons. So um, that's the major distinction. 
Now, yeah. this person can still make referrals, but in addition to getting credit for those that they refer, they're getting credit for their own consumption. Right. So on the on back, back to the coalition thing, if I referred you, not only am I getting credit for your consumption, but you are too. Yep. It's coming from a separate bucket, referrals and direct consumption, but it's still that you're getting you – know, there's a, a waterfall distribution that happens every 10% that we grow is, is our inflation model. So it's not based on time or just periodic consumption. It's based on growth. Growth, okay. Which creates the right alignment of incentive for everybody to be thinking about growth, right? Because we're like, okay, well, how do we – how many members do we need to get to this next level of growth? And, you know, you know how do we activate that, right? How do we get that – well, we need X amount of referrals to drive X amount of members, which drives X amount of payroll. And it's a fairly simple equation, but we try to give people as much transparency to that as possible so that they can act accordingly, right? So as our network gets bigger, it grows and grows and grows. And then we replicate what's called the network effect, which is what you need to build a community like this. Nice. And so my next step is either a employee or coalition member would just be go to the website, sign up or go what to the it website. Like? There's a form there that you can sign for either one and say, look, I'm interested in this. And then what happens typically is there's like a, a handful of questions, like really low level questions, just to make sure that we understand who you are and you're talking to the right person. And then from there, you'll be given the opportunity to set up a, a call with the membership steward who will then give you the details. Um, we are working on automating a lot of the detail work and automating this sort of educational process so that way you can kind of self-serve it and you mm-hmm. don't have to talk with somebody. Um, the inflow sometimes, like right after ETH Denver, for example, was like so busy we couldn't even talk to everybody. So we're trying to get to a place where we've automated the content and automated the educational process of that initial learning. Yep. Um, the phase one learning. There is always going to be an element of this, given how intimate it is, that eventually if you're like, hey, I'm ready to join, you'll still talk to an, uh, a membership steward. Mm-hmm. But that sort of um, you know, inquisition to you know, the, the, the initial sort of fact-finding stuff is going to be entirely automated probably sometime this year. But that's where you go. Opolis.co is the website. Uh, there's really interesting content on there. There's you know a bunch of uh, old podcasts and blogs and things that we've written. There's some how-to tutorials. There's a bunch of other informational stuff on there about who we are, what we do. Um, again, there's no catch to any of this. There's no like, well, here's where we hide the profit, or here's what we do with this. or There's no reason to do any of that because we're community-owned. We're member-owned. Yeah. So when you become a, a member, you become an owner, and that means a lot because the ownership mentality really shifts how we think about consuming services. It does. 100% completely yeah. shifts it. Well, that's awesome. Well, uh, John, um, before we wrap up here today, I would just be curious, outside of Opolis, outside of ETH Denver, um, if you have any spare time beyond those two, um, <laughs> what's exciting you about the Web3 space that, uh, that you're seeing on the horizon? Well, you know, I always say that we're in like, we're probably in the second inning of a seven game series to use a baseball analogy. As far as like timing, you know, we're still really, really early. So like, what's interesting is we're kind of in a, we're in a biddler's market. We're in a builder's market right now. I I wouldn't even call it a bear market because I think that is not the appropriate way to describe it. Um, in a bear market, I wouldn't expect our attendance at ETH Denver to double right. this year. So explain that to me. Okay, if you want to look at price exclusively, sure, it's a bear market. But if you want to talk about biddling or building, it's very much a bull market, right? Because it, you know, this is the time that we put our heads down and we go, go after it. So the thing that excites me the most is, well, there's two parts. Well, there's, uh, there's one that's more symbolic and then there's one more tangible. So I'll, I'll do both. The, the one that's more symbolic is I think the genie's out of the bottle. Yeah. We've finally gotten to a place of development and maturity and fidelity in the space that I don't think there's any going back. Now it's just a function of time until, you know, one of the various loose bricks in the wall comes out, whether that's a nation state that adopts reserve currency as Bitcoin, not just use of Bitcoin, but reserve currency as Bitcoin, or it's a um, 
you know, some other huge global fundamental thing that happens. You know, I don't think it's just based in the U.S. I think that there's a lot of moving parts and pieces here. But that excites me because, you know, I think even three or four years ago, I would have said that the Web3 crypto blockchain space is very vulnerable and very fragile and, and, you know, could evaporate. I don't think that's the case now. I think there's too many interdependencies and other things that have gone on that like, and even retail investors getting involved and big hedge funds getting involved. And like, I mean, there's, it's, it's too big to fail in some ways, but I'm not even sure that it would get to that because it's distributed nature by itself, I think creates sustainability. So I, I just, the genie's out of the bottle. I think it's here to stay. And I think that represents a lot of hope. The second thing that I think is really interesting. Um, so I, I was posting about this the other day on Twitter and my friend Ilya from near protocol um, tagged me in a tweet that he had made like, you know, a day before or something. I hadn't seen it, but I think there's a nexus between web three and AI that's coming yeah. And we talk a lot about governance issues in Web3 and how we create better protocols for decision-making and how we maintain benevolence and how we reduce attack vectors for whether it's a civil attack or it's something else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, How do we actually protect these systems? Because humans are frail and humans yeah. uh, make mistakes. And, and frankly, trustlessness is not a a uh, feature of human behavior. Right. So we talk about code is law and what is AI? It's code. And I think that there's going to be a huge amount of development around this, this fusion of these two technologies, specifically in organizing systems that is going to come out over the next 18 months. Mm-hmm. And what can we do with an automated intelligence inside of communities that are well-trained, not to be, you know, the, uh, to be trained to be neutral, not in just to run the code and to execute. So you talk about administrative functions that are already being abstracted away from corporations. What about the management of a DAO? Right. What about, what about the, the administrative functions of a DAO, right? Where it's like, okay, well, this treasury thing needs to be done. This proposal was passed. This needs to get executed. Like right now, we still depend on a human intermediary to, to function those transactions and to do those things. What if all of that was abstracted away to an AI intelligence that was only doing what it was instructed to do by the code? Right. And so no human could touch it or mess with it or interfere with it. That's a really interesting development because I think if we were able to do that, a lot of the complaints and and troubles that we have in the concept of DAOs, decentralized, not really, autonomous, not really, an organization, not really – so what are they exactly? I think this is a good step in the direction of actually making DAOs um, more widespread and adoptable, even in, in uh, you know, homeowners associations and other things that might yeah. be typically a little bit messy, but they don't need to be kind of thing. So I think that's the most exciting thing. And it's not a, a just a, it's not, there's not one particular use case that I'll point to. I think it's that nexus, that fusion in general, that is really interesting to me and, I think represents huge opportunity for the space. That's awesome. Well, as a fiddler in the space, I'm, it's always great to hear, you know, your perspective on things and um, the, the DAO thing especially resonates with me because as a quasi member in some DAOs, a more active member in other DAOs, you know, I would say the, the, <clears throat> the exception is a DAO that works well, not the norm. <laughs> no, um, most of them don't work well. In hmm. fact, I've even seen some, some DAO maximalists come out and say DAOs don't work. And I'm like, oh, come on, guys. Like, you know, like, that's not the conclusion that you come to when you talk about an iterative process. What you do is you you point out the things that are not working and you look for how do we solve maybe a new problem that we haven't seen before, an old problem with a new look. But how do we actually create tool sets to overcome that? And like, for example, AI isn't where they go, right? They just, oh, it doesn't work. And it's like, right. well, that's because you're thinking about it this way, but what if this was possible? And it's right. like, oh, then they don't even think about that. So it's like, well, like even like the innovation of like quadratic voting, you know, it's like a, right. a revolutionary game changer in terms of getting kind of votes that people kind of have skin in the game on as well. 
um, mm-hmm. is, is another really cool innovation. Like just little things like that, that I think, you know, Dow, Dow's are going to be a lot more influential in the future. I, I Dow feel tooling, we're, we're in the, we're in the, we're in the, the beginning season of Dow tooling. So DAOs in general have existed, but there was no tools, there was no infrastructure, there was no way to do anything. So then you got a snapshot and a few other things that show up, and it's like, eh, okay, but cobble, 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 cobble together. Yeah, discord, discord. Yeah, okay, yeah. But now you've got Safe building some interesting things. You've got who's really well funded. You've got people building on top of Safe. You've got other things that are happening throughout the ecosystem. You've got DAO House V3 that's just launched, which is a completely modular DAO framework system that you can put your own UI on top of. You've got all sorts of really, and, and new things, new things that are popping out that it's like, and some of the things that they've come up with, when I say they, I mean the community, is just genius stuff. Now, it's still nascent, it's still early, it's not proven, It will it work, will it not work, will it be adopted, I don't know, but out of this sort of noise is going to come the recipe, the template, it's not different than like, you know, C-Corps just didn't come out of the bag as like the thing that we use, you know, like C-Corps were invented. Yep. And somebody said, hey, we could do A, B, and C with this particular framework, maximize profits, protect shareholder interests, you know, create securities rules, et cetera, et cetera. And it's developed over a long period of time. Like that just didn't happen just it was a developmental process. The same thing is going to happen in Web3. And once that template is set, and once it's proven that it works, you're going to see it applied to pretty much everything. Yeah. Legal framework, value accrual, value distribution, membership, you know, regulatory, like all of it in one bag. And then people are going to go, oh, well, that could be applied to this. And then boom, boom, boom. And it's going to be everywhere. Yeah. Well, John, thank you again for your time today. Uh, thank you for introducing the YWLS community to Opolis and what you guys are uh, building. And thank you also for just your contribution to the uh, Web3 space with ETH Denver. Um, as a Denver native, I uh, love it. It is part of my annual routine now. My wife just knows not to talk to me that weekend. It's um, Super Bowl and- weekend. You don't, t- you don't talk to me, babe. Yeah, I love exactly. you. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm busy doing my Bufficorn yeah. thing right now. Yeah, so we got uh, opolis.co. Um, how else can folks get a hold of you if they want to engage with you or Opolis? Uh, Twitter's the best. Uh, I'm at, at PallerJohn on Twitter. So that's the intro handle I have in my name here on the, on the podcast. And, uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. You know, you can follow me there. And, uh, you know, through opolis.co, you can also eventually get to me at some point. But Twitter's usually where I hang out. I don't usually do too much outside of that. Well, Awesome. Well, thank you, John. Thank you, YWL's community. And uh, we look forward to hearing all from you guys at the next uh, podcast. So good night, guys. YWL's was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWL's is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show and your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.